Hey everyone, welcome back to the Pope Francis Generation. Today we're joined again by Jordan Wood for round three. Jordan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm surprised I got another invite. <laughs> now, uh, Paul, what's the topic for today? We're so glad to have you. Yeah, for our third conversation with Jordan Daniel Wood, we're going to be talking about hell and universalism. Alrighty. So this has been kind of a buildup. What have been the past two episodes? If people miss them, uh, and do they need to check them out ahead of time? Can we, uh, Paul, can you give us a quick thumbnail of what we just covered? Yeah, we're going to reference the first two conversations a little bit. The first one was about St. Maximus the Confessor and uh, the vocation of and role of the theologian in the church versus the vocation and role of the catechist. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, the last time we talked, we talked about uh, salvation and grace and virtues and some of St. Maximus's perspective on those things. Okay. Um my first question in diving into this, and Jordan, maybe you can take like a one minute stab at this. Why are we putting so much focus on Maximus when one might say we have the catechism? Why are we referring to putting so much stress on on uh, what he's had to contribute? Well, I think um, a few things come to mind. One is that he is a saint in both you know, East and West. Um, so that's a significant already a bridge figure. He's been gone back to several times to be retrieved, in fact, for ecumenical purposes. And I think he's just beginning to kind of have his uh, his his you know his golden era it, certainly at least in the West, and so not, uh, Catholic theologians as well have been some of those who have contributed to that resurgence or that kind of rise to prominence, including not least of which is the the Swiss Swiss Catholic theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. Um, and so, but I think as well like that the general trends um, like one of the main trends of the 20th century catholic theology as we all know nouvelle theologie or sometimes called the idea uh, but also i think president vatican too pretty clearly in in the documents themselves is um going back to um the church fathers in particular but i think also just more broadly um a kind of a, a re-appreciation and reintegration of the richness and the entirety of christian catholic tradition um, and I think that the revelation of God's self in time really deserves nothing less than all we can give it. And so I figure we ought to uh, pull on every voice and especially the luminaries, even ones that are perhaps lesser known. Fantastic. I'm pumped for this conversation. So we're covering hell and universalism. Uh, let's, let's get into it before any more preamble derails the intro. Hello, friends. Welcome to Pope Francis Generation. It's the show for Catholics struggling with the church's teaching who feel like they might not belong in the church anymore and who still hunger for a God of love and goodness. Your hosts are me, Paul Fahey, a professional catechist. And I'm Dominic, someone who needs catechesis. Together, we're taking our own look at the Catholic Church, her teachings and practices from three views that changed our world. And those are the charisma, the doctrine of theosis, and the teachings of Pope Francis. Together with you, we're the Pope Francis generation. And actually, before diving in, Paul, this is the closing episode of season three, right? Yes, it is. Talk about Helen back, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in there. Yeah, it's been a great season. Okay, so I want to introduce Jordan. Uh, so Jordan Daniel Wood is a stay-at-home dad of four young daughters. He entered the Catholic Church about eight years ago. He holds a PhD in historical theology from Boston College. And when not changing diapers and making school lunches, is currently working on two translation projects. He's also the author of the book, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation is Incarnation in Maximus Confessor. Jordan, thanks for coming on a third time. Absolutely. It's a delight. I am I'm privileged. Thank you. Um, so uh, when I first came across your work, and I, I talked about this more in, in, in earlier episodes, you hinted at... Um, universalism within Maximus's thought. And then a few months after that, that was about a year and a half ago, a few months after that, sometime last year, um, you were interviewed by Dr. Larry Champ, and you talked more directly about universalism. Um, and then a couple of months ago, you were on a podcast called Grace, Sa Grace Saves All, um, talking about universalism. And I've grown... In the, in the past maybe five or six years, I've grown more sympathetic towards um, towards the arguments for universalism. Um, I found some of them more compelling, some of them less compelling. But I also put um, a tremendous amount of trust in 
um, the church's magisterial teaching and magisterial authority and, and the belief that, um, that because the Holy Spirit guides and protects uh, magisterial teaching, that there's a level of, uh, of assent that's owed to that teaching. And, and, and this creates a space of tension, which maybe I experienced as negative uh, initially, but now it seems like a place of contemplation for me. Um, and I think Dr. Larry Chapp talked about that um, in his discussion with you about this, where he said something like, I really appreciate doctrine because it's a solid thing to hang on to and it prevents easy answers. If you got to wrestle with the thing, um, you, 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 you can't have easy answers and it fosters the, this creativity of the spirit, I think he talked about. So I'm interested in having this conversation with you on how to navigate that tension in some way. Um, and I want to refer back to our first conversation when we referenced Pope Francis and the difference between the theologian and the catechist. And he said, this was in a, a speech he gave last year. He said that, quote, the catechist must give the correct doctrine, the solid doctrine, not possible novelties of which some are good, but rather what is solid. Whereas the theolog whereas theologians risk to go further and it will be the magisterium that stops them but the vocation of the theologian is always to venture to go further because he or she is seeking and is trying to make theology more explicit. So here we are, I'm a catechist and you're a theologian, and I'm really excited for that to frame the discussion that we're having. How does that sound? Sounds great. Yeah. I think it's a crucial distinction just because, um, yeah, just, just to be upfront about it, I've never said, nor would I claim that, my personal opinion on universalism is the teaching of of the church that would be an example i think infringing upon that boundary or that distinction that pope francis makes so but nevertheless we got to see that as a gift to both sides yep. right a, a kind of freedom that says look because i'm not a catechist and i'm not trying to just tell you here are the basics here's you know let's let's be clear about these things there's it's also just as much a part of the tradition and incumbent upon us to um, to um, that frees up the speculative side and vice versa as well, right? I mean, you can you don't have to feel bad about giving not giving you know all of your novelties or some something you're working with on the level of catechesis because that's just not the goal. So, I think it's a great framing. Awesome. Um, so, I want to start then by sharing what the magisterium itself teaches about hell. Um, so you can find you can find that I'm drawing from two different places. One is uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1033 through 1037, um, and then Pope Benedict's encyclical on hope, Space Solve. Um, so I'll read some excerpts. This is not the entirety of those sections, but it gets at the key things. So this is from the Catechism. It says, uh, to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. This state of self-definitive self-exclusion, sorry, this state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and of and the blessed is called hell. The, the teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, the eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin is necessary and persistence in it until the end. So that's from the Catechism. I wanna read a short passage from Space Solve. So this is, to my knowledge, the most recent teaching that the Magisterium has made about hell. And he says this, with death, our life choice becomes definitive. Our life stands before the judge. Our choice, which in the course of an entire life takes on a certain shape, can have a variety of forms. There can be people who have totally destroyed their desire for truth and readiness to love, people for whom everything has become a lie, people who have lived for hatred and have suppressed all love within themselves. This is a terrifying thought, but alarming profiles of this type can be seen in certain figures of our own history. In such people, all would be beyond remedy, and the destruction of and the destruction of good would be irrevocable. This is what we mean by the word hell. That was Pope Benedict. So in short summary, what the church teaches 
So hell exists. It's eternal. It's not for just a length of time. It persists into eternity. It's not a place. It's, a, it's the state of eternal separation from God um, that a person by their own free choice through the course of their life, as Benedict talks about, um, can choose this state of definitive self-exclusion from God. That there's no second chance after death, right? Purgatory is not, you know, a place for a second chance. That at death, our life choice becomes definitive. Um, it doesn't say that any person is for sure in hell. Uh, um, Benedict sort of references that, um, but he doesn't state that. And nor does the church have or have ever had a anti-canonization process where it says <laughs> someone like Judas or someone like Hitler is definitively in hell like we have have always had for people who we know are in heaven, the saints. Um, and finally, uh, the church is clear that God does not desire anyone to go to hell, nor is he predestined anyone for hell, but he desires all to be saved. Um, after all of that, <laughs> um, and I'll probably refer back to that, those things in our discussions, what is universalism? Are there different kinds of universalism? Like I've heard people call Hansers von Balthasar, who you've referenced, and even someone like Bishop Robert Barron, I've heard people call them call them universalists. So what are we talking about here? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think um, I think that yes, there are different kinds of universalisms as people, you know, label and reference uh, theologies or perspectives today. There, there is I think roughly, um, you know basically two broad categories that is are in current you know use right now one would be um what you might call uh hopeful universalism although i think it's a little bit of a misnomer but let's just go with it <laughs> which is which would be more i think balthazar um and there are shades within that though and i think not insignificant ones so one might if they read um ratzinger's book on eschatology for example or JP2's uh, book on eschatology, you might you might categorize them as hopeful universalists in the sense that they don't exclude the possibility that all are saved. So that's like a that would be like to me that's a kind of baseline marker that says look if you are like say neo Augustinian or you're a certain sort of Thomist or something that or if you're Ralph Martin or somebody and you've basically said no actually the church has taught that some are in hell and they'll try to go to like, you know, um, I don't know, see like the council of Leon or something. And they'll try to say like the church there, the magisterium is speaking as if like, as if it's assuming that the concrete fact, a judgment of fact that some souls are in fact in hell. So if you're in that camp, I'd say you're definitely not universalist where you sort of cross the line, at least in the hopeful universalist had categories. If you think, no, that's not quite right. Balthazar was correct that, the church bids us to pray at the liturgy and also in the office of the hours for the salvation of all of humanity, precisely because it's a possibility, not something that's been foreclosed. And and that would be Bishop Barron's position too, right? I think so too. Yeah. Now I think the difference and you know, and people can interpret this however they want, maybe it's context, maybe it's audience, maybe it's whatever. The difference would be, I, at least when I get most of the time with Balthazar, it's not always in all of his writings, but say in like, dare we hope, or, or in the short discourse on hell, even towards the end, um, I feel like his his his, his uh, the weight is far more on mercy and the probability or plausibility that are all all are saved. Like there's in other words, there's a way and be a, a, to be a universalist. And I think Barron is often more this way. That's just simply agnostic, right? That that doesn't say I feel an inclination towards this is probable or this is not. It's just more like you know. Uh, it's God's judgment and who are we to say, and we don't know what's going on inside the human heart and how deep is the human heart, even up to the last moment. Uh, and what exactly is the transition between this terrestrial sort of coil that we have in our, un, you know, throwing it off. And, um, and is there something in the middle there? And so it's just an agnosticism, but holds out nevertheless, a sort of gen generic possibility that all are saved. Even critics, uh, vocal critics in the Catholic church today of universalism, like father James Dominic Rooney is that. So that's, that's an interesting point because, you know, I think <laughs> If you're talking, if you're just taking a poll um, across the the history of even the Catholic tradition, I don't think that's the majority position either. 
Yeah, I mean, my understanding would be that there is there would be no conflict between that position and what's what's taught in the catechism. Right, exactly. Which is why it does make sense that that's the intuitive kind of place to go. Um, and then I think from there you kind of get shades again, but basically the other sort of side of the of the universalist boundary would be much more sometimes called a confident universalism. Sometimes it's called a hard universalism. Whatever. It's just anyone that comes to think or or cannot see how God would not or could not and would not save all. So universalism broadly then is just the 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 teaching or the perspective that all will eventually be saved. All rational creatures. I mean, I suppose we can go into whether or not angels and you know, but let's, I'm just going to say all rational creatures will somehow eventually be saved, not skirting justice, not skirting transformation, not skirting freedom of the will, not skirting punishment or pain or even severe and absolutely unimaginable terror and torture, even not like you know, torture, but like the torture of like inner psychological turmoil, the torture of reconciliation, the torture of coming to see your, what you've made of yourself compared to what you ought to have been. So that's the generic view. And then you just basically get shades of like whether or not someone just thinks, yes, that's possible, but I'm agnostic all the way up to like that is I'm, I'm like it's a conviction. I believe that will, in fact, come to pass. OK, so what does where does St. Maximus land? Uh, we were talking. Uh, I forgot to look up in my uh, 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 Ukrainian Catholic Eastern Catechism on how I forgot to look that up before we started. But you referenced it and said that uh, he's cited in its uh, teaching on hell. So where does Maximus land? Oh boy. Well, it's it's kind of it's kind of a uh, it's a nice it's a shrewd move that they cited him not only because he's a he's a great Eastern father, but also because the, the where exactly he lands is itself ambiguous. So, um, in fact, Balthazar himself was sort of one of these who, along with an early 20th century French scholar, um, really defended the idea that Maximus's theology it, like he is universalist. Now, there's a distinction between whether or not his theology is universalist and whether or not he's explicit about that in all of his, say, communications or letters or because his writings are often occasional. So, you know, uh, there was this there is this sort of part of the tradition that in the monastic ascetic context, you don't simply proclaim uh, the truth in its fullness to everyone, but you reserve it, say, for the perfect and so sometimes you'll you'll pass over quote an honorable silence, which is a phrase that Maximus uses three or four times. Balthazar's argument exegetically is, and he was himself a Maximus scholar in his own right, um, is that if you trace where Maximus says speaks of the honorable silence, and then you go back to where like Origen wasn't so silent, but on the same like for example treating the same passage like First Corinthians fifteen or something like that. Um, where, where Maximus says, I could speak of a greater loftier interpretation, but I'll pass it over in honorable silence is actually a reference to, uh, Christ's in fact, saving all universal salvation, which, which some like Gregory of Nyssa or origin had already pronounced. So, or the point is Balthazar defends the idea that Maximus exegetically Maximus is, you can see in his writings, a universalist. There have been blowback to that. Not, not least of which was father, um, um, daily father, um, his first name she should always mix him up with robert daly brian daly at uh, notre dame he he's argued against that both of us are responded to actually dailies and so anyway it's, it's been a scholarly debate i think i i land more closely to both interpretation of maximus but i'd want to add a few things because there are there are some passages and actually this is useful to talk about because maximus is, i think himself exemplifies some of the major speculative theological problems here because you can easily point to there are passages in Maximus that sound very what you might call infernalist, which is, by the way, a phrase that Balthazar himself used. It wasn't like David Harder just came up with it. Um, Balthazar used it infernalist. You know, um, those who think that either all will go or, or uh, some are in hell or some could go to hell. And then that's it. There's nothing more to say. They're is, not in heaven. Is that kind of a like Macedonia position of like Ralph Martin? Yeah, that would be that would certainly be the extreme version. But I just think sometimes infernalist is just covered, you know, maybe loosely, too loosely used to cover sort of anyone who just thinks it's possible that one, even one creature of God's would be eternally damned and separated from God in their entirety forever in misery. So um, anyhow, I think um, so there are some passages, you know, Maximus on uh, the reference in Jude to the angels shackled. Um, 
and you know very much he talks about the fixity of the will they'll never choose good all this stuff like there it sounds like pretty much straight up traditional hill however then you go to a text like uh question 64 and in, in questions to the lawsuits and he says um he speaks about christ's descent into hell and he talks about the quote eternal bonds which shackle the sinner and usually is through material attachments and so forth. But he calls them eternal. These are eternal. It's the exact same words used in the New Testament, aeonios. And, um, and, and he says, but Christ's power breaks the bonds. So now you have this interesting thing where you have something that's an eternal bond. But even though the bond itself is eternal, it's also broken. So it changes from shackling the soul to to it being, you know, destroyed. And so the soul's released. And so, and then there's a few other points I won't get into, but basically I think Maximus is, I would agree with Balthazar, but I'd want to add some nuance and some layering because I think Maximus's own position is more nuanced. This also does, by the way, in my book, I don't talk about universalism uh, really, at, uh, except like in a footnote and I don't even take a stance. So my book contrary to what some people have suggested, isn't some kind of mani secret manifesto of universalism through Maximus. And if you want that, you can just go to Balthazar. He's already made the case explicitly. But what what I'm what I'm saying is, um, what I think is interesting here speculatively and for, for our conversation isn't just the kind of historical, you know, case of whether or not Maximus was a supporter of, of universalism. But actually, it's, it's this really fundamental idea. And you said earlier about the, the magisterial teaching as a kind of place of contemplation. And I'll say this, you know, I guess folks don't have to believe me or not, but it was actually reading the exact passages you summarized from the catechism. And I was trying to make sense as, as, a, as a Catholic and yet having this growing conviction about universalism. Uh, how can I maintain these two is something I'm asked like weekly um, now. And when I read that and I thought, you know, there, there does seem to be an obvious distinction between hell and purgatory. It was actually in reading and meditating on those exact passages that I came to recall. And that's almost the way I want to put it, even though I hadn't really thematized it for myself or made it explicit. But I came to recall what I would now call the fundamentally paradoxical character of the sinful soul. So, in, so here's the thing. We usually do this with evil, right? And we might appeal to, say, the city of God, St. Augustine, calling evil a deficient cause. It's deficiently caused, not efficiently caused, is, right? Is it is, is that the position like like darkness isn't a thing in of itself? Exactly, it's an absence of light. Yeah, evil's called, not a thing; it's an absence. Yeah, it's a privation theory of evil, which interestingly, Ratzinger in his eschatology book actually pushes back against. Which we can come to that in a minute. But um, he so it's Augustine, right? So his point being what you said, right? Like evil in and of itself is not anything. Which means, though, if it's nothing, then it's also in and of itself not an object to be desired by the rational will. Which, so I think Augustine agrees with, say, Gregory of Nyssa on this and in his interpretation of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where Gregory says the reason why it's called the knowledge of the tree of good and evil is because evil also always has to present itself under the guise of the good in order to attract you. It's like luring you. Because since you are fundamentally, and here we could recall, right, Just I'll just allude to the Catholic 20th century Catholic debate over the natural desire for God, right? If we are fundamentally in our very nature or from our origin, already oriented to, to desire God and find our rest only in God, then that means every instance of failing to do so, which is itself the, the occasion for sin, is actually um, a deception. Sin always happens under the sort of banner of deception and ignorance of the truth, which is exactly why we can mistake it something like glory, uh, sexual pleasure, greed, money, or whatever. We can mistake those things which are relative goods as if they're the absolute good to cite confessions too. Um, and every every desire for a relative good, which is sinful, is still yet, quote, according to Augustine, an imitation of the good. So you're always fundamentally desiring God, even though you're so deceived, you don't even realize he's the one you're really after when you're chasing all these other things. That's the confessions in a nutshell anyway. Yeah. So... No, so and, the, and that sounds like I mean, that sounds like C.S. Lewis. That sounds like pretty yeah, pretty mainstream yes, Christian thought. It is, it is, and it, yeah, exactly. And like you said, right across Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, it, it's it's across all of them. Here's the significant part, though. 
we all then seem to be agreed that the origin of evil in the soul is a fundamental absurdity, but it's real. That is to say, I'm fundamentally deceived. The way the New Testament talks about this is, as it were, putting on or sort of growing up the, in the old man, the old Adam, which according to Colossians 3 has to be severed and buried and put down so that the new Adam might, might be sort of, you know, brought manifest in you. So here's my point. And this is, I see, you see, you see this in Maximus as well, who talks, who speaks in a lot of the same, the same language that I just mentioned and actually develops it more. Sin isn't just an error, like an error of judgment, like you got the math problem wrong. <laughs> Nor is it, though, simply loving evil just for evil's sake, like the Batman line. Some people just want to watch the world burn. Which, <laughs> which I would, to jump back, I mean, that sounds kind of like, I mean, that sounds kind of like what Benedict said in Space Solve, where someone whose heart is so hard that, that they prefer deceit over truth, they prefer uh, evil over over good yeah now the part i i sort of waver a little bit with with what the way he unpacks that in that document and some people have also pointed out the kind of problem with that document in particular and i don't just mean like not even about universalism just about it's a very theologically laden like interpretive document um makes sense you know he, he's a theologian so um what carries the weight the explanations or the conclusions and how do you you know uh, what's the authoritative like that's not always so easy to do. i think even avery dulles pointed that out but the, the point is like when so when he says a phrase for example like the like the it's irrevocable like the destruction of the desire for the good in the soul uh, what does that mean i mean saint dionysius said for example that satan himself still still wills the good because his very existence, insofar as it's caused by the good, which itself can only produce the good, is at least in its structures, if not in its orientation or its actual acts and desires, right? So, or like uh, certain parts of the monastic tradition would, would exegete the parable of the Lazarus and, um, and the rich man, is the fact that the rich man, who is across the chasm, still wants someone to go back and warn his brothers, means he's got like an ounce of compassion in him, which is a virtue which means something good's in him still, right? So there's this, I don't know what it means to say. I don't, I'd, I just want to, I'd like want to submit a dubia, you know, <laughs> a dubia and say, what do, What exactly are we saying here? Now, interestingly, Ratzinger in his eschatology book, when he's just writing in his own kind of personal voice, he actually does, um, he says that evil is real for God and it's not nothing. Um, and he works from the cross outward because basically his his way of thinking there is, well, God experienced evil and what he experienced isn't nothing. It's actually the full weight of suffering. Yeah. And now I agree with that. Interestingly, I actually agree with that. And I actually think Maximus does too in a really remarkable convergence. However, I don't know, I'm not sure if I would <laughs> deduce the conclusions the same because what he experiences is exactly what he overcomes. So it's not just like, it's not like, well, God suffered, therefore he he absolutely valorizes and makes permanent and equally eternal to himself evil. That sounds like a sort of pseudo-Manichianism. Rather, I would say, um, yes, he experiences as real, but he only ever experiences it as the horror of hell. Yes, passively, it's suffering. It's real suffering. But it's never just simply suffering without the end of the resurrection and the ascension and deification. So anyway, that's getting a little bit in the weeds. But the, the point is, um, it was reading the catechism that I was trying to say, like, I was trying to contemplate on, like, what, what does it mean? Like, is, is there a way that so, that actually one and the same subject, as it were, could be split such that they do the, the false self that, that, according to, you know, the old man of Colossians 3 does, in fact, get thrown into perpetual suffering? And Balthazar himself has a speculation in the fifth volume of the Theodrama, which he calls the the uh, unusable residue left by evil. That's discarded. There's nothing to do with it. It's totally wasteful. And it's it's useless because it's utterly absurd. Anyway, the point is, my here's the basic point. It was when I was thinking about the catechism, it's interesting to me that we are fine with a, an inherent absurdity of evil at the origin of evil. But then all of a sudden we expect a tidy systemization of the denouement of evil so that such that, oh, it's going to be either someone's in hell 
or they're in purgatory or they're in heaven. And basically the subject has been unaffected through all their evil. And I would actually like tend towards Ratzinger's existentialist sort of read, which wherein someone can become so twisted that God himself, like they make for God himself evil real in his encounter of it on the cross, ultimately as, as the suffering God. But what I'd want to say is, is uh, if we're going to go all the way with that, and this is where now I'm taking the speculative thing from the catechism away, I'm doing the theology thing. What I'm saying is, okay, is there, is there a way in which that same inherent absurdity will mark the character of our entire narration of evil from its origin to its destruction? And I don't see why it wouldn't. So this is, you see where now speculatively we can go into this other realm. So anyhow, I don't, I don't want to go too far off of that, but um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so how does um, some of the parts of those passages of the catechism that I didn't read um, were where it grounds its teaching in uh, the teachings of Jesus from, from the Gospels and the references that Jesus, is, Jesus makes to hell. How does Maximus address those passages that seem, um, at least from my reading of Scripture, to be the strongest cases for an eternal hell? Well, so I don't, so Maximus, uh, to my knowledge, does not extensively treat them. Okay. Um, now, if we want to pull back, though, and just say, well, we can treat them still and maybe take some cues from them here and there, I would say this. I mean, and other people have pointed this out. We can talk about the sayings of Jesus in the gospel, but like which ones, right? Are, uh, why can't the annihilationist appeal to the straw that's thrown into the oven as an image for hell and destruction and say, well, see, look, is annihilationism is true. The words of Jesus prove it. Um, so the images that Max or Maximus Jesus uses, <laughs> um, whether they all suggest different things, and it's interesting to kind of try to hold them together. Sometimes it's a you're thrown out weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of forever and ever. Or we could skip to Revelation: the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Um, but also you're thrown in like you're you're like someone who's ungrateful the ungrateful unmerciful servant you're thrown into the prison and you will not come out quote until you pay the last penny but that's an end yeah uh or you're like wheat or like chaff you're thrown in or like straw thrown into the oven utterly destroyed burned up well that's annihilation so which words of jesus would be kind of the thing and even like um so again the paradoxical nature here is where really what i'm stressing Again, Ratzinger, it's just because I was reading him recently, as so it's on my mind. He, for example, also appeals to the apostolic witness of the New Testament as a clear teaching of hell. Well, the first one he cites is 2 Thessalonians 1.9, which speaks of the eternal destruction to come. Well, if you look at the Greek terms, you have alethros, ruin, destruction, total total annihilation almost. It's the opposite in, like, like you see, Plato, it's the opposite of generation is orethros, ruin, destruction, decomposition. But then you have it juxtaposed there and qualified by Ionion, eternal. Notoriously, and I won't get into that whole debate, but an incredible elasticity of meaning. And not just in the Greek term, but also, as uh, I think Trent Pomplin's pointed out from Notre Dame, even in, even in Latin, even in the Middle Ages, classic Middle Ages, Eternitas, and its variants, extremely flexible. At the very least, Ionion in Greek it means precisely no change at all. Both Aristotle and Plotinus say that the etymology for aeonion is ae, always, on, being, that which always is. Um, which is a negation of this realm of generation where things come and go and change. So interestingly, for you know, 2 Thessalonians 1 uses these two words which are paradoxical in use because you have a decomposition, a change juxtaposed with that which never changes. Uh, how are we going to handle that, right? So anyway, I would just say a view like the kind of false self-hell division of the person as a part of sin actually can accommodate all of those images because there is a part of you, and it is you. You give yourself for this delusion, and you bring it about in a sort of false and kind of bastardized incarnation. That needs to be destroyed like the unresident. That's annihilation. It also, though, is sort of like, you know, you suffer the torments. It's precisely because you falsely identify that you're in multiple states at once. It's a, it's a state of fragmentation, of t uh, not of subjective unity and personhood, but a state of fragmentation of an objective fracturing or 
fractaling almost of it. That's actually too beautiful. Shattering, right? And so you get again, you so the point would be what we get in the catechism, and even sometimes what we get on the, the surface statements of um of scripture. And this is apart from other considerations like etymology, semantic range of eternal, uh um, you know, and so forth. But if you if you you, you start to see that actually you get very little. You get very little because nothing is clearly defined or very few things are clearly defined. And if you start to think through the entirety of the whole set of the data of scripture and the tradition, it's clear that something like a synthesis has to be called forth, you know, for, which is all the last point here, which is also why it's like, it's interesting, like universalists are asked to kind of account for what they say in their account of hell in light of say the catechism, but I would ask the same thing about the kind of in vogue free will defense of hell, which is going around right now as well. And has been for a while in Catholic circles because it says in the catechism, certainly in space Alvi, it's like you said, it's the whole life choice. It's a definitive moment, mortal sin, definitive moment. So it's actually the picture there is doesn't, at least on the surface seem to be a perpetual sequential one reject active rejection after another. And that just kind of goes on indefinitely. And that's hell. Actually, what it sounds like is on the surface, no, at the end of your life, wherever, whatever state you've kind of crystallized becomes actual, uh, perpetual, right? And becomes, as it, in the words, right, definitive. Yeah. So if it's really a definitive act, you don't need any subsequent acts of rejection because you've already made the one in total choice. So those that are trying to kind of say, for example, present the free will defense as if it's more or less just a report of the tradition and the magisterial teaching is are actually doing just as much of a creative creative proposals as anyone. And so let's just, I'm just, I'm just sort of asking just for, let's be clear about that. Right. So, uh, oh man, I have like a whole ton of notes and then not enough time to cover all of the notes. So I'm going to go off of something that's not on the notes entirely. Um, right. Something that I resonated with, in your conversation with Larry Champ about doctrine and the importance of doctrine and, and, and that we've talked about here, um, I think about, and I've referenced this story on the podcast probably a hundred times at this point, but the like definitive scene in the story of the Exodus and the liberation from Egypt where God's people are, uh, God led them to the bank of the Red Sea and Pharaoh changes his mind and now they're trapped, right? They have, uh, an impassable barrier in front of them and um, Pharaoh's army barreling towards them. And this is a place of extreme tension and what seems like no resolution possible. And then God, God on his own makes a way where there was no way. And it wasn't like there was a, hidden thing, some legend of a secret passage. It was like, no, there was no way. And God makes a way. And um, to me, this speaks of the creativity of God to, <laughs> to bring something from nothing, right? Mm -hmm. um, where tension and paradox and conflict that, that, I, speaking personally, often in the past couple of years, I feel like the Lord is leading me to when I feel those places of paradox and uh, feeling entrapped, where he's calling me like he called the Israelites in that moment to wait and and see what I'm going to do. Um, and I think that that plays out in a broader sense. Like I think about the development of doctrine at Vatican II on... Um, on salvation outside the church and how it took what, like if you were to compare what council of Florence said about um, non-Catholics being saved and what Vatican II says about Catholics being saved, they sound absolutely in contradiction to each other. Yeah. Vatican II teaches this and you can see like the golden thread all the way back through the tradition to scripture of how it reaches the conclusion that it gets. And actually it says, because this is how we need to understand Florence, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, that golden thread is there and that underlying continuity is there. Oh man, the observer, it sure looks like God made something from nothing, right? Um, that th th there was this real transformation that happened. And I think that that's, that's something that 
that excites me is this like I can hold onto onto the solid doctrine, as Francis says, and with security um, and not with shame. And I can also hang on to these arguments for universalism that I find compelling, um, both at a personal existential level and at a rational level. And I can just wait in that place. And I can Mm -hmm. like wait for the Lord to do something creative either to me so that internally, like rationally, I can like synthesize those or, um, or whether or not there's some 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 future some future development right in the in the church's teaching, um, that's the place that that I've come to in that. And it to me that sounds like that's like the work that you're doing, like you're holding on to this is what I understand of the tradition, especially Maximus, and this is what the Catechism says. And how can these two things that seem like contradictions that create this paradox, how can they find reconciliation? Then your work as a theologian then is to theorize what reconciliation looks like and to propose that in a non-antagonistic way to the church for discernment. And ultimately it's the magisterium that that, that, the ways down. Does, does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can give you a concrete example of how that's gone for me. Um, I'm less, I'm less willing to make simply like um, might say abstract or formal arguments for, for universalism as like absolutely necessary on the abstract level. Um, watch, just follow my, you know, eight, eight, eight step argument. Like, I think those have a place and I'm not writing them off at all. But um, for me, what is clear whenever, whenever the magisterium has been, um, nervous or anxious about anything anything from like the necessity of grace built into nature or the question of universal salvation or the question of anything what what they're what what very often is at stake it's clear in ratzinger's eschatology book what's at stake is a making unserious of the human life that is to say a kind of a way to to avoid the hard work of spiritual transformation which comes through the, the the life of prayer, of the sacraments, of being in the church, of pursuing and following Christ. Um, my apprehension and the way that my perspective on universalism right now, it couldn't be more directly related to that concern, which is to say, far from far from it being the case that I, I just sat down one day and thought really hard and figured out, well, you know what, I think God will definitely save everyone. And if he doesn't, I happen to know that he's he's you know he's absurd or terrible or whatever. What it is is that I looked at Jesus Christ and I looked at the links that God Himself has proven in Himself that He's willing to go to even harrowing hell, and I'm saying that that God's love is so incredibly overwhelming and stable, and it's overflowing that I can't I literally can't make sense if this if the if the self same God who was willing to abase Himself to that degree. For my salvation, no, I don't merit it, but I also I also can see the glory He's revealed in the cross. That God couldn't do anything, but everything to get every He. You know, I don't know. I heard a story yeah. once about how He would go save the last sheep and yeah. leave the ninety nine. Um, so it's not that He's just the Father on the porch waiting for the Son to come home simultaneously it's just as true as he's the one who goes out and looks for the lost sheep and you can emphasize one or the other and both would be one-sided and wrong and lack the whole that kind of existential intersubjective personal and we've talked about this in past episodes right the person of christ is the center the person of christ is not an idea or even a great argument the person and, and also though that means that his love is not a great idea or a great argument or an external force to me, but is deeper to my own soul and lighting up my will behind itself because it's diluted. This is stuff that these abstract binaries can't capture. That has been a consistent theme of the magisterium to this day. No objective systemization of this stuff to close it into a nice tidy system. Well, that's not what this is for me. Yeah. And, and I think there's definitely a golden thread of that thought. I think of to, uh, in the Summa, where St. Thomas talks about 
uh, is there hope for the wayfarer, like the, the, the hope for the wayward soul? And he says that our hope, and I'm paraphrasing, is not in our works. It's not even in the grace that we have received already. And I hear, I hear baptism when I hear that. But rather, he says, it's our hope is in who God is. 100%. Um, so to go through this quickly, uh, in the Grace Saves All podcast, uh, you made a point, and it follows along this thread, where um, there was an argument made for universalism that um, can a good God knowingly and freely create persons who he knows will reject him and suffer for eternity? Can a good God do that? And I resonated with that a lot. And you made this point in the podcast that this isn't an abstract intellectual argument. This is a profoundly personal existential argument because it gets down to, can I trust that God is good or not? Yeah. And that's the question I think that's at, that every believer asks themselves, can I actually trust that God is good or not? That's the very first question. Like the catechism teaches that Adam and Eve in the garden, that that first sin, first they let doubt of God's goodness die in their hearts. And then they mm. grasped in control and disobedience themselves. So that question, is God actually good? It's profoundly important. So if if I believe God is actually good, and if I believe that he goes to, does everything, every extent possible, as you said, to chase every single person down because he desires them and desires union with them and did not ever create them for damnation. Like where I've landed is something like, um, is something like where St. Edith Stein uh, 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 wrote about. And it's this proposal that, if God desires all to be saved, which he does, that's explicit. And if he can change our desires and move our hearts, even before we respond, which he can, um, this is also consistent teaching of the church, that even the desire to be, uh, to convert is itself a gift of the Holy Spirit. That if God can do both of those things, then while it may be theoretically possible, it is infinitely improbable that at the end of the day, God will not throw everything in the kitchen sink at somebody, that they would still reject him. So this is what St. Edith Stein says. She says, all merciful love can thus descend to everyone. And we believe that it does so. And now can we assume that there are souls that remain perpetually closed to such love? As a possibility in principle, this cannot be rejected. In reality, it can become infinitely improbable, precisely through what preparatory grace is capable of affecting in the soul. And I love that, where she's like, in principle, we can't reject it because we also have that tradition in the teaching of the church. Yeah, and so the question then for speculative theology would be, what's the difference between in principle and in reality? Yeah. And this is, this is where it's like, yes, I can understand in principle, but you know, when I say in principle, I'm not thinking of any actual person because I'm thinking of potentially every person. And so it, it's precisely possible only to the extent that you abscond or you abdicate from the actual concrete dynamism of love. When I do that, yes, I can in principle see that it would be possible if God's fundamental disposition towards uh, people are indifferent in the way that my, my own will might be indifferent to, to an idea. Then sure. Yes. I, so, I, so, so, and, and there's, and it's not just like a, like it's useful to see that. Like that's the point. I'm not trying to throw out that strain of the tradition because I actually think it's critical to see that as a moment of developing in our understanding of God's love. So in principle, in other words, if God left you simply to your own abstract idea of yourself, which isn't true, you're always chasing this image of yourself, which is nothing but a figment. But if you really, but if then in reality, so I'm with St. Edith Stein on this one. In reality, when you move from the realm of the abstract, the syllogistic, the abedictic, and you move into the realm of the God who is who is willing to be crucified to go down to hell, the realm of divine love, which is ecstasy for creation, according to many, many of the saints. And if you read through like, you know, St. Gertrude of Helfta or even St. Catherine of Siena or, you know, anyone, Meister Eckhart, you're going to see this side of it come through, which is another part of the tradition. And, and that's what I would want to call in reality. This is the first Corinthians 13, 12. In reality, know love and know as I am known. This here it becomes 
infinitely improbable, inconceivable that God couldn't get to anyone. And this is to me like at the end of the day, here's one way to carve it up. Either I have reasons to turn to God, which yes, will be particular to me. They're personal. They're not abstract ideas or formulas or theorems. Either I have those reasons, the reasons of the heart of which the heart, uh, which of which reason knows not according to Pascal, either I have reasons or I don't to turn to God. If I don't have any reasons, then my turning to God isn't really an act of freedom at all. It's an it's a sheer act of force that God can or cannot realize or actualize. In other words, it's a brute act. But it has nothing to do with me. On, on the contrary, if I do have reasons to, to, to be, reasons of the heart, reasons of love, to unify with God, then I can't see how God wouldn't know how to get to them and to actualize them so that with me and through me, he brings himself, as he says in John 3, he drags me to him. And that is my salvation. That's my deification. So that would be, for me, the end reality. That's in reality. That's actually how it is. In theory, I can abstract and say, sure, yeah, the possibility is there. Sheer possibility is always there. But um, God didn't make a, a, he didn't set out to create a realm of ideas or theories. He created people and children. Yeah. So we have come up against our time. This has been a great conversation. Uh, Dominic, do you have anything that uh, you want to throw in or wrap us up with? I wish I could say something smart, <clears throat> but no, this is, there's, um, it's just, it's like the beginning of there. there oh, how do I say it? There are so many other questions that then follow from this kind of like, like what you've gone, Paul and um, questions about how to take a, I guess what I would love to continue seeing is um, an accessible. And I know that there are academic discussions and forays into this whole thing. I'd love to see a, a, an accessible one, maybe for more the average person um, that continues to go into this. Cause I've read David Bentley hard and I've read um, Balthazar and, and they're headier and they're harder to, to get, to get through, but it's conversations like this that are beginning to um, see how there's been a loss of terminology. There's been a, a misunderstanding or maybe a misapplication over exegesis or over time. And it's, we need to start coming back to here. I'm just, I'm just scrappling for words here. Come back to roots, come back to intentions, see that there is not a monolithic, you know, uh, sense that undergirds everything. And I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling, but I'm grateful for this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the thing that comes to mind as you're saying that, Dominic, is an openness to like to contemplate mystery and uh, paradox and to not, to not let go of things too quickly just for an easy answer. Mm -hmm. For me, the key thing, again, out of all of this and why universalism is so appealing. And again, it just it, I think if we can define how the word is being used, because it's it's bandied about on Twitter in way too facile a way. And, um, but when you get down to it, it's an extremely deep word where, where nothing, every penny gets paid, you know, uh, as, as scripture is adamant about. Um, so how to build a, a catechesis and a culture, uh, and an understanding of how God interacts with humanity, um, that's anchored in more of this, this is, I'm hungry to understand this i have to say just real quick uh, to add the i think if this perspective is communicated adequately and i don't claim it always is um at least in my experience people rightly there there's two responses and usually they come in rapid succession and strange one is joy of course you know, it's, it's every, you know, all your loved ones, so, so, and so, I mean, I always think of that, that video we've mentioned, I think before with Pope Francis and little boy and his father who wasn't a believer died and he wants to know if he's in heaven and right. That kind of joy, which is, which the Pope was explicitly bidding us to contemplate, but then also terror. <laughs> and I think this is a crucial there's, there's terror because what it means is this, you never it's not just you'll never escape God's wrath. 
is that God's wrath will never cease until you come to see for yourself your own wretchedness for yourself. You know, an utterly deluded uh, soul doesn't know it's utterly deluded. It's in the process, which is utterly personal and almost impossible to describe. It's in the process of guiding that soul step by little step relentlessly to come to see, as, as Christ says, your own words will judge you. And I know there's a different interpretation there, but it's coming to see yourself for what you've made yourself into. And the fact that you'll never escape being brought to that realization by the grace and mercy of God, actually. Yeah. That, that has people rightly react with, wow. So there really is no escape. No, no. And, uh, I'll read it. I'll quote it. I referenced it, but this is Pope Francis references from the second synod of orange. Even the desire to be cleansed comes about in us through the outpouring and working of the Holy spirit. I can't desire to be cleansed until I know I'm how dirty I am in the first place. Right. Just as you said, and that's a gift of grace. Mm -hmm. God Absolutely. desires relentlessly for all of us to experience. <laughs> and I, Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, for all of us to experience how broken and dirty we are. And I think there's this kind of facile idea out there that try, and I understand it. I really do. I'm not trying to be uncharitable, but it's this idea of like, you know, for God to really take our sins seriously is to basically hand us over forever and, and wallow in our own delusion and misery and perpetual rejection of God. Well, I understand why you wouldn't want God to like, you know, be the one inflicting punishments on the soul externally, but instead you want God to respect the boundaries the soul itself has erected for itself and its delusion. But actually in the process, you make God more or less inconsequential to any particular soul. He's like the background noise against which whatever you decide to do happens. He's like gravity, which whether or not you jump or sit down is always at work, but making no real difference. Um, and I think that that isn't satisfactory. What you read and what you're saying is more satisfactory. And it's also more complicated. And it also resists easy binaries and opposition and, and, and abstract ideas. Free or grace. Determined or able to reject perpetually. Well, we all know, I think if we think carefully even about our own lives and our own relations with love, failed and successful. That it's always way more complex and therefore more rich, but also much more difficult to understand than that. Yeah. And so I think God really is the hound of heaven. He really is not. That's not what his love is. His love is willing to go to hell. And so he's also willing to go to hell in you, the hell you've created in yourself. And if he's willing to descend one, this is that saying he's trying, right? Is he willing to he's willing to descend in there in his grace? We know he's willing to because he did it, and we say it, we confess it. So um I'm not really sold on this kind of like uh hey, God's over here and you're over here, and he's gonna sort of write you letters and hope you respond one day, but maybe you never will. That's too distant. That's not that's not God's love. His love is far more insane than that. Okay, Dominic, take us home. Yeah, one last micro question, if it is, with this topic. The things that Christ says in the scriptures about this, I'm wondering if there's a difference now because he hadn't harrowed hell yet. Mm. Does that bear any fruit? Now that hell has been harrowed, does that reflect backward on what has yeah, been said? Yeah, right. And there's, uh, I think it's, you know, both of us are says and other people say but with the, quite a different meaning that hell itself is a christological concept but i think what they're doing is they're pointing to that really what what they really mean is that hell itself has been made possible at all because christ experienced it and simultaneously it's been overcome at all because christ experienced it and so, yes, you can do that. I've seen people do that, like map on, like, well, what he says here, you know, in this parable, it maybe it presumes a sort of, as it were, pre-harrowing state of hell. But but you don't you don't send the God man into hell and 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 he leaves hell unaffected. 
right? This is this is God. This is Jesus Christ. He doesn't just he doesn't just politely sort of make overtures to you, right? Nor does he violate you uh, violently and possessively. That's demonic. So sure, but luckily for us, that's not the only two options. Love surpasses both. Friends, if you enjoyed this conversation, <laughs> hit that like button if you're watching it on YouTube so that more people can discover this conversation and learn more about Jordan's incredible work. Um, hey, if you are enjoying these conversations, we would love to meet you and hang out. You have got to have about as many questions as we do. So, Paul, where can people go if they want to continue conversations with us? Yeah, so you can check out uh, Father's Heart Academy. It's a community that we're building for folks looking for more compelling answers to their questions um and who who are tired of of just looking for easy answers but are looking for um uh some deeper truth and some deeper contemplation yeah plus members of the academy will also get special access and benefits paul just wrapped up as of this episode a recent workshop and we're, we're launching a, a new one or he's launching a new one he's doing the work and it's, people are really enjoying it they get the chance to meet with paul regularly discuss recent podcasts or current events in the church he's holding seminars workshops on specific topics and magisterial documents uh, our goal is to help uh everyone understand what the church actually teaches so that we can grow in our relationship with god and share his love with others. So check us out at fathersheartacademy.com. And if folk aren't yet ready for that, Paul, and they want to share questions or feedback on this podcast, where can they go? Yeah, the host for this podcast is popefrancisgeneration.com. There you go, popefrancisgeneration.com. Lastly, you can come and join Paul and myself in Smart Catholics, the free online community for Catholic millennials, creators, and learners who want faithful conversations unafraid of doubts and questions, just like this one. Plus, we're free of trolls and ads and toxicity. Join us at smartcatholics.com. Till next time, friends, say a short prayer for yourself and for us. And remember, don't be afraid to ask questions. Doubts can be a sign that we want to know God better and more deeply. God bless you. <laughs>